We all think about what we eat. We plan our meals or count carbs or do any number of other things when it comes to what we put in our bodies. But do you ever think about the flavor of what we consume? Sure you do. What we eat or drink either tastes good or it doesn't. In fact, taste is the number one consideration in what we consume. Yet, there's more to it than just like or dislike. And there's even a whole industry dedicated to it. Flavor is memory. Flavor is feeling. Flavor is science. Flavor is art. Flavor is McCormick Fauna. I'm Corey Doucette, and welcome to our Flavor University podcast, where we explore the science, artistry, and industry behind flavor. I'm sure you've heard the phrase, built different, when referring to how someone thinks, looks, or acts. Well, the same holds true for those who work with and create flavors. They are indeed built different. They don't just use one way of thinking or creating to meet the needs of the customer, but many. Today's guest, McCormick scientist too, Rob Bowen, does just that. He uses any number of resources, various fields of food expertise, and diverse ways of thinking to create amazing flavors. Thanks for joining us, Rob. How are you today? I'm doing all right, Corey. How about you? Oh, A-OK. I am ready to get this show on the road. So let's start with a quick introduction of yourself. What do you do? How did you get to where you are? And how did you get to McCormick? My name is Rob Bowen. I am a food scientist here at McCormick, working in applications with the flavor design and development team. I'm kind of a legacy, super legacy McCormick, pretty much grown up in this company. My dad was working here when I was born. So by the time I graduated from high school and started college, he got me a summer job because we all got summer jobs here. I have two older sisters. They also worked here in the summers. And we just started doing that for the summer. And it was good money for a part-time job. So I was like, can I come back for Christmas break? Can I come back for spring? (laughs) (laughs) So I just kept coming back every year. And that was, you know, doing production work. And I would always see the guys in the white lab coats coming out of the lab. And I was like, I want to do that kind of thing. I'm a science geek. I was a biology major. So I was like, yeah, I want to do some lab stuff. So I ended up wanting to work in quality assurance and quality control and having no idea that that was not going to be exciting for me. Um, (laughs) So I ended up doing that for a little while and I felt like there was something missing and finished with school and just started working here full time, got in where I could get in and then made my way to that lab spot and was very bored and saw something open up over here at the research and development facility, which everyone referred to as the country club, because there was this this impression that people didn't work over here. (laughs) So I saw a job in the applications group for a technician. So I tried, I, I applied for it and, you know, I really, I was a foodie before we knew what the term was. So I, I got over here in 2003. Um, so I've been with the company at this point 29 years. So I came over here in 2003 and was started doing this and discovered this whole world that was foreign to me and had never, I didn't even think it was a thing. Like food science was not a popular major when I was in school. So I didn't know that it, what that world even was. And I got over here and I was like, oh, I can make, I can cook and do flavor and like it just fascinated me so I was working on the bakery team as the bakery team you sort of did all kinds of baked goods 
And it also included like microwave popcorn and cereal and things that you wouldn't think of, all of these sort of bakery adjacent ideas. So I just stuck around and got some certifications, became a certified baker, went to candy school, which was a lot of fun. Yeah, it just I sort of just stuck with it ever since. And here we are, geez, 19 years later. <laughs> so Rob, you, you can't you can't just touch on candy school and not elaborate on that. <laughs> I mean, that's like when I say I went to clown college, you know, <laughs> you know, people instantly go, what does that mean? So what does that mean? Like candy school? I mean, please. Candy school is like, it's like a candy boot camp. You go for uh, <laughs> the University of Madison, Wisconsin, Madison has a candy school. So you go for two weeks and you spend eight hours every day learning and making learning how to make learning the science behind candy and all of in all of its different forms so you make everything from gummy bears to m&ms to jelly beans to toffee and chocolate so you do it a chewing gum you do everything there and it's so much fun it's just the best two weeks i've done I think you just like accomplished every little kid's dream. That's right up there with like, you know, dinosaur camp or space camp. Oh man, it was so amazing. Like you get there and everybody is from a food company, mostly candy companies. So like they highly encourage people to bring what they make there. So like you get there and there's this just table full of candy and they just sit it there and you can go up and grab candy and eat it all day if you want. Mm-hmm. So my wife was very jealous that I got to go to candy school. I took pictures of everything and showed it to her, made her jealous. Uh, so it was great. It was great. I had a lot of fun there. Candy school is worth all of the hype, and I would highly recommend everyone look it up and try to get in. I think it's time to, I don't know if I have to tender my resignation to do this, but I do have vacation time <laughs> built up, uh, so that could happen. So, Rob, how do you take all these experiences and these, you know, these candy school adjacent, so on and so forth, and, and ball them into one day for you? What, what does your day look like? Do you use this stuff on the regular? I use much of it on a regular basis. So, like, one of the things I really liked about this job was because it's kind of, it can be different every day. It's truly based on who your partners are with the development process. So, like, I could be working on cereal one day, cookies another day, brownies, candy. Somebody could want a, a gummy, a sugar-free gummy bear, and I got to ma- figure out how to make that work. I could be making a, a cereal bar. I could be trying to figure out how to make inclusions for these things. So there's my candy experience. I can make toffee and that kind of stuff. And one of the things that I did was made like a um, bacon brittle to chop up and put as an inclusion in a, a cookie. So then you have a sweet cookie with salty, sweet bacon and chocolate chips. I'm in. <laughs> so it's that kind of stuff. On a day-to-day basis, it totally depends on what projects you have going on. Uh, I could be working on a meat analog one day and a yogurt the next day. <laughs> So a day in the life of me is depends on what projects I have going. I come in, I see what I have laid out before me, see what my timelines are, and then we go to work, come up with ideas. And, you know, a lot of time the ideas have been provided by the customer you're working with, but there's always room to riff a little bit on those ideas because they, they always have the idea of what they want. But if you can show them something slightly off kilter from that idea, more often than not, they love it. 
So you're, you're kind of like the Mariah Carey of uh, hybrid <laughs> flavors here going off on riffs and tangents. I mean, that's, that's incredible. And I mean, I've had like back to your bacon comment. I mean, anything bacon I'm sold, but we've, I've said that before on the podcast, I think. I mean, if you've had it like nice crispy bacon on a vanilla ice cream, like that's amazing. And it sounds to me like, you know, you're, you're almost playing mad scientist in a way where you're, you're, yes. you're hybrid, putting things together, savory and sweet, so on and so forth. What are, what are some combinations that you've made that are kind of maybe unexpected or that people ask for and you were just kind of like, well, maybe you want to kind of go this way instead? Well, here at Hogwarts House of Flavor, we do all kinds <laughs> of interesting things. Um, we do, uh, I do this really cool cookie that has um, red curry and lime and um, mango. And that sounds like it might not be that great together, but like you put it in like a shortbread cookie and then toss it in a sweet, sour sugar concoction. And you get all these sensations out of sort of one bite. I do a lot of stuff where I do like custom chips for the cookies. So like that cookie, I make a white chocolate red curry chip. And you put that in the middle of a shortbread cookie that has like a little bit of lime flavor cell in it and some candied mango. And then you toss all of that sweetness together, the sweet and saltiness with a sour, salty sugar coating. It's amazing sensation. And it might not sound that great, but it tastes, it, it always gets resounding results from it. People love it because it's so unique and there's not anything in the world, in the market that is similar to it. You know, and I get this question a lot and I'm going to ask it to you too, Rob. I mean, when I'm working, you know, people go, how do you know how to do that? And for me, it's, it's repetition. I've seen it before. I've done it before. You know, is it the same for you? Cause it sounds like, you know, you're taking flavors that you know of or ways of baking, cooking, whatever that you know of, and just making it work or just marrying them together. Is that how it works? It's a lot of experimentation. They're not all winners. <laughs> I've made a lot of uh, a lot of duds over the years, but like you just you get a feel for what com- flavor combinations work when you have to deal with flavors all the time. And I love to eat. I, I have lots of different ideas about what kind of fusion flavors you can put together. And you know, I love to take things from one part of the world and things from another part of the world and try to mash them together and see how we can like one of the biggest joys I have is when I can get somebody that is very sort of boxed in with their tastes when I can get them to eat something that they say they would never eat and they love it Mm. you know and that goes for even making like one time I made these protein bites out of cricket protein and you know that's a tricky one because you can't (laughs) You you got to be careful with how you tell people that you're feeding them something made with cricket protein, mm-hmm. <laughs> but you don't want them to get angry with you. So it's it's kind of a, a thing. So you go, this is cricket protein. It's really clean. People can eat it. Just try it. And if you flavor everything properly and put it together in the right package, people will eat things that they wouldn't normally eat. And I love to get people to do that, not trick them into doing it, but get them to voluntarily eat a thing that they're like, eh, and then they love it. But actually, cricket protein is one of the better ones because it doesn't taste gross. Pea protein, however. We've heard that before. <laughs> is the one that is, is proven to be very difficult to work with. It has gotten better over the years. Like, they've made it cleaner and cleaner. But 
when it's first upon the early inceptions of some of these pulse proteins that you know come from legumes and beans and that kind of stuff they were not terribly delicious so like the trick that i've found that works the best for those kind of challenging proteins is to lean into the flavor that they naturally have and try to work with it instead of fighting it because when you fight it it typically doesn't work you have to find something that is similar but is appealing so like for pea protein there was a lot of vegetative green type of notes so if you pair that with like a pineapple like if you do a pina colada protein bite that really seems to work or like a chai or some kind of spice thing that sort of works well like so if it's a browner protein then you use a brown spice or uh, some kind of brown fruit component that would work well with it or some chocolate or something like that so a lot of these things that are challenging to people the initial ask when customers are working with these is, can you make this taste not like this? Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, I can. I don't know if I can make a taste not like that, but I can make that taste better and more appealing. Now, are these considered maskers that you're doing, or what, what are these? So, uh, yes. Yes, and uh, maskers, I think the confusing part with maskers is it's only a science component that is there to mask things and fool your tongue. But a flavor can also be used as a masker. So like a straight-up flavor that is a traditional flavor can be used as a masker in the way I just described. Like if you find a flavor that works with the profiles that are in that protein, then it's not necessarily technology so much. But sometimes you do have to use technology. That's a very delicate balance, and we really prefer to partner with customers that want and need maskers because they're not like typical flavor solutions like with typical flavor solutions the perception is well if you tell me to use it at half a percent and i use it at one percent it's going to taste that much better because you know if half a percent is good then one percent is going to be amazing with maskers because they are indiscriminate and will mask everything you have to be really careful. Some of these things you have to use at parts per million in order to achieve your goal without throwing off your entire flavor balance. So for those kinds of things, we really do prefer if the customer is willing to work with us hand in hand and we can go through helping them do the incremental changes that may be necessary to do that. And you know, sometimes that even involves maybe you need to tweak your base to accommodate what you want your final profile to be. Yeah. And I, I think your overall message here is, and, and you kind of touched on this earlier, just get people to try it. Don't lie about it. Tell them what's in it, yeah. you know, and just try what they like with what they don't and make it work, which is probably why, I mean, one time when I was younger, I had a girlfriend who didn't like miso soup or trying new things. And miso tends to have just tofu and maybe seaweed. And she was like, what's the green, green, or maybe even sardines or whatever. And she's like, what's the green stuff? And I was like, oh, it's just onions. Go ahead and, you know, try it. And maybe that's why she's an ex-girlfriend now, maybe. Yeah, that, I mean, that I could probably be should it. Told her. <laughs> so, you know, my, my wife, I frequently will tell her every last ingredient that's in there and make sure that she knows, you know, what's going on. And that's, you know, that's my maturity growing as, yes. as a human. Yes. Um, <laughs> you know, you know, Corey's love life aside, uh, <laughs> These, these, I mean, these products are crazy. These, I mean, it's almost like you're constantly creating some kind of hybrid here. Let's talk about like a trend that I'm seeing and that's 
to do flaming hot everything. <laughs> I mean, they've got flaming hot Doritos, flaming hot Cheetos was where I think it started. Yes. We're, we're into flaming hot Mountain Dew. Next thing you know, it's going to be like, you know, flaming hot pork chops or something, which probably already <laughs> is a thing because, you know, hot sauce. But there's, there's flaming hot. I was just in Hawaii a couple months ago and we found this place that all they sold was corn dogs, which in and of itself was a little weird. But all they sold was corn dogs, and they had corn dogs coated with fruity pebbles. It appeared, it looked like fruity pebbles. They didn't call it a fruity pebble because I think there's a licensing thing there. But <laughs> it looked like it was coated with fruity pebbles. Then there was another one that was coated with what appeared to be flaming hot Cheetos, and like they just like that's a thing. If, if whatever you can crush up a Cheeto and put it on top of, have you seen these turkeys that they're coating with flaming hot? <laughs> no. <laughs> Yeah, no, that that's a thing. Like, if you Google flaming hot recipes, you will see so many different ideas. So, with that sort of evolution, I knew it wouldn't be long till there was like a soda that had flaming hot in it. And you know, me personally, I'm not interested in drinking a thing that I would drink to cool down <laughs> the sensation of flaming hot. Yeah, I think yesterday you said you weren't interested in drinking lava, and I, I'm right there yes, with you. Yes, exactly. It's like drinking hot lava. But, you know, there are there's a whole generation who love these food challenge things where, you know, guys get together and like, dude, I bet you won't drink six of those. And then they try to drink six of them and end up, you know, with burns. Yeah, I mean, it's all over the place. Like, they've got the one chip challenge, if you've seen that. Yes. Yes. They've got the the hot ones on YouTube, which, you know, celebrities oh, yes. eat the wings. gradually getting hotter wings. But kind of <laughs> kind of switching topics here, going going more into the bakery side of your expertise here. In my experience, baking is a very precise art. Yes. You don't have as much leeway with baking as you do with cooking. And you know, I, I was making a, a pie the other day as we we discussed <laughs> yesterday and I, I'm terrible, terrible at making pie crusts. And, you know, I rolled mine out and it was too thin. I went to go try again and it was falling apart. So I think I know what the advice is for this kind of thing. But my first question is when creating flavors for bakery, is it necessary for you to be that precise in, in that as well? Yes, it is. Anything you put in, you need to subtract something else for. You have to use precise measurements because it is basically a reaction. So if you don't have the proper ingredients there to work it within that reaction, you're going to get an unstable or unusable finished product. So there is a balance that you need to strike and you do need to pay attention. And it is very important that I, I understand ingredient interactions so I know what I can take out and what I can replace it with. And that's kind of what you learn. You learn it over the years. You learn it. I learned it going through my baking certifications and all that kind of thing. So it's, it's, it is very precise. And honestly, for things, if I'm making something at home, I haven't made my own pie crust in years. I just buy the, the stuff at the grocery store. They have come a long way with making that taste just as good as a homemade pie crust. And as I have said, over and over again, if somebody is being that critical of a baked good that you made, then they can make their own <laughs> and not eat what you brought. <laughs> but yeah, they, that, that stuff, my suggestion for you, Corey, is to just buy the, the pre-made pie crust. I get the pride that you would have after making your own and being successful. But, 
you know, some things are just easier that way. Somebody else has done the work. Like I do the work to develop flavors that work best for people. Somebody's worked really hard to make sure that pie crust will work really well for you. So just buy the pie crust. <laughs> I'm not going to say that I took that pie around my house, Lion King style, singing Circle of Life after I was done, but that may have happened. I mean, the, it's great advice. You know, like you said, don't recreate the wheel when you don't have to. Exactly. You know, unless you want that point of pride, which, you know, I, I'm not above being that guy that walks into the party with the Walmart cake saying, you know, I made this myself. I just put it on a different, you know, pie plate or whatever. So, I mean, having a terrible pie crust all the time is is kind of, I think, my problem. I always have those common baking problems. Are there are there common problems when it comes to creating flavor, like flavors that last, flavors that freeze well, flavors that, you know, what what are some difficulties when you're when you're making these flavors? There are common problems, and it really is. It's why I have to know lots of different applications. So, like, because each application kind of has its own challenges. For baked goods, the the common problem is freeze thaw and bake stability. And fry stability as well. So like for a donut, you need to have a flavor that is able to survive the frying cycle and not leach out into your oil. Because like for a production facility, they don't want, they're going to run everything through the same kind of oil. So like, or the same vat of oil, they're not going to change out their oil every time. So you need to have a flavor that is stable and holds in a fried product. For a baked good, if it's supposed to be a par-baked product that they freeze and then they sell it to a consumer, they get it home and have to finish baking it, you need to have a flavor that you know is going to survive that. So like we have developed over the years lots of great technology that works for that. The one that works the best for those kinds of harsh treatments is our flavor cell technology, which is a glass encapsulated uh, flavor technology that we have. Um, and it comes in a few different matrices. We have a high solubility one that you could put in like a tea bag that will dissolve right away. And the medium and the low stability, which provide way more protection and are good, can be used in gummy bears and hard candies and baked goods, extruded products. Whatever your challenge, people have worked really hard to come up with solutions for. And if you're unsure, like as a customer, if, if people are unsure, then ask the question. We probably have a solution. Now, you're saying glass encapsulation. I, you're not actually like eating glass here, right? <laughs> what, what, are we, what are we talking about here? No, you're not actually eating glass. It's just called glass encapsulation. It is That word is basically used for comparison's sake to the crystallized nature of the product. So like salt crystals. We all know salt crystals and sugar crystals are not actually crystal. So it's the same sort of terminology to represent the same thing as particulate particles and particulates that are hard and cellular, basically, and will be protected. But no, no, there's no glass used in uh, <laughs> no, actually, this isn't Willy Wonka. No, you can't eat the cups. You can't eat the cups. <laughs> as much as the people refer to us as Oompa Loompas because we're making candy, this is not Willy Wonka. <laughs> I totally forgot who I was talking to there for a minute. <laughs> uh, we get called the Oompa Loompas quite often when we're working on candy. <laughs> oh, man. I'd hate to hear what people call the IT guys. <laughs> so. I think we've kind of reached the end of our questions. Is there anything you wanted to add that we kind of, you know, maybe missed or glossed over or 
I'd really like to touch on, again, we want to be a partner. If you come to us at the right moment and we can work together, we can get you the best flavor solution that you would need for whatever your project is. But it really is important that we be partners. Most of the time, we have all of the legal stuff covered so you can disclose your information to us without worry that it will go anywhere or we'll do anything with it. We want to be partners with with every customer that comes to us. And, and that really, that is beneficial to everyone. You know, that transparency that comes with that. And what do you do when you get a partner that is asking for something you know won't work? You know, we talked about, you know, spicy things and, you know, spicy Mountain Dew seems kind of far-fetched. Do you, do you tell them, you know, straight to their face, hey, look, that's not going to work? No, you can't, you, you, you have to use some diplomacy. Um, <laughs> you, you can't just tell people that that idea is garbage. You have to sort of like guide them. And lots of times you have to show, you know, because more often than not, you can show better than you can tell. They say what they want. You give them exactly what they ask for. But at the same time, you provide them what is probably the most ideal solution for them to try as an alternate. So they'll try the one that they think they want. And then they'll try that alternate and go, oh, you know, I think we would probably prefer this heat level. Like if somebody tells you like they want a atomic fireball toaster pastry, you give them that red hot cinnamon flavor, but then they go, well, we want it to be hot. Well, you don't really want it to be hot because two of those toaster pastries typically come together in a packet. You want them to be able to eat more than half of one or a quarter of one. (laughs) You want them to be able to eat the whole thing. So you give them that thing that they think they want, and then you give them the more realistic version that is not super hot. And that typically kind of works, but it's sort of like you have to work together. Now, there, there are some customers, if you're par- really partnered well, you can say, you really think that'll work, but more often mm-hmm. than not, you can't do that. <laughs> so mm-hmm. you have to be more diplomatic in your guidance to them to get them where you think they should go. But, you, you know, we don't ever tell them their baby's ugly. <laughs> remind me to never show you my children um so so awesome awesome these are great topics great points rob let's let's ask for kind of one of our last things here and that's maybe one or two takeaways that we can give to our listeners things that you know you want them to pull from this podcast that partnership thing again um, <laughs> no ask is too out there or too crazy we have been asked lots of things or we've worked on things and then we'll have we'll be in a conversation and they'll go well we were gonna ask you for this and we're like well why didn't you ask us for that just ask what's the worst we can tell you we can't do that and honestly more often than not we're never going to tell you we can't do that mm-hmm. we'll tell you we're going to try our best and we'll come as close as we can to any outlandish idea that anybody might have I jokingly referred to us as Hogwarts House of Flavor earlier, but I do sometimes feel like that's who we are. Like we sometimes can pull off the unpullable. <laughs> I mean, if anybody can do it, it sounds like you can, Rob. I have full faith in you. <laughs> so that's kind of it for the podcast itself. And now I'm just going to ask you some off the cuff questions, one or two more personal things, answer to the best of your ability. If you need a second to think, go ahead and take it. But my first question for you is, I I mentioned that I'm not above buying store-bought and claiming it's my own. Have you done it? What did you do it with? You don't have to tell me when, but I would like to know that as well. Honestly, I've never done it. 
I've never done it. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry to disappoint. I've never done it. I will take a mistake before I will, <laughs> will buy a store button and pass it off on my own. Because I've, in my experience, a homemade mistake is quite often better than something you could get at the store. Mm-hmm. Not to criticize anybody that does the store-bought stuff. That is not a... <laughs> I don't want people to not do that. Because a mistake for me might be different than a mistake for you, Corey. So I... Yeah. Like, <laughs> I <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My, my burnt cookies, I'm not taking those to, to a party. Yes. So a mistake for me is my cookies, you know, cooked all together. Because I oh, put yeah. too much sugar in them. So then everything's all oh. buttery and caramelized. That's a tasty mistake. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. But they're not yeah. burnt. So like that's no. a tasty mistake. I'll take that somewhere and go, well, you know, these were supposed to be this thing. But if you got ice cream and we crumble that up, it'll taste delicious on top. So like you just turn that mistake into a, <laughs> into a win. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. I love it. So let's let's just talk about the elephant in the room. Which Hogwarts house are you? <laughs> I don't know because I feel like I'm part Slytherin, part Gryffindor, and that's not anywhere. Hufflepuff is certainly not that. So <laughs> I'm not sure. I got. I think everybody's got a little. Yeah, everybody thinks they're a Gryffindor, but I, I'm not above admitting I got a little Slytherin in there. Mm. <laughs> All right, last one. What is your favorite cut corner shortcut when you're baking? We already talked about buying the pie crust. I don't know. I I don't think I do. Oh, yeast. I don't always use fresh yeast cakes. Okay. (laughs) All right. Well, shame on you. Um, (laughs) I would prefer to use fresh yeast every time, but I don't always have access to it. So. Mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. um you know, that that's a kind of lame <laughs> shortcut. I mean, <laughs> you can hang your head if you want to, okay, I, you know, because that's just awful. No, I'm I'll buy okay. cut up fruit. <laughs> I need to use fruit ready to cut it myself. I buy it already cut up. But yeah. it's a point of pride for me to to have good homemade stuff. Yeah. And it's actually yeah. expected of me. If I come, if I show up with something, because pe- everybody knows what I do for a living. So if I yep. showed up with something. <laughs> If people will roast me hard for years, mm-hmm. I wouldn't make pies. Like I would just make cakes and cookies and somebody, I got roasted for not making pie. So then I started to have to make pies. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, it's almost like I can do this. I swear I can still yeah, do it. Exactly. Exactly. Cause then you start to question yourself. It's like, well, am I lame? Can I not do this thing? They keep ragging on me for? Yeah. I mean, and I get that because that's exactly why I pitted six cups of cherries to make a cherry pie. Exactly. So, exactly. Yeah, I get that. Yeah, you get could that. buy frozen cherry. You could buy that canned stuff. Nobody's going to know. <laughs> no way. No way. And I had it last night and it was delicious. <laughs> that's it for the Flavor University podcast. I'm Corey Doucette. I'd like to thank our special guest, Rob Bowen. Thanks for listening. And until next time, the flavor of McCormick Fauna is the flavor of life. So go out and taste it. <laughs>